Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalists Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971. Bonus time on the Ben Jarowski Show. As I speak, it's June 1st. June 1st. I cannot believe it's June 1st. I, of course, am in my uh, lovely Airbnb uh, room somewhere in California because that's who I am. California Ben. uh, The Hollywood kid. Living large in a room that's about the size of a closet, visiting family in California. Uh, I have a distinguished guest waiting to come on, but before I ask him to introduce himself, I'm just going to give you a sense of what's in the news today, folks. I'm not sure this is satire or news or both. Uh, in the, the show earlier today, my guest, Miles Conflas, and I urge everybody to check out that interview from these times. We were talking politics, particularly uh, the uh, ceiling debt debate. Uh, in Washington, uh, but he notified me of a speech that Donald Trump gave today, Thursday, June first, in Iowa. Yes, Donald Trump is running for re-election. Or excuse me, re-election. Boy, that's a Freudian slip. Uh, he's running to be president again, uh, and uh, so he's in Iowa. Uh, and in this snippet, he went on this riff where he denounced woke. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I actually, I went back and I listened to it. It's true. Donald Trump denounced woke. If there's anybody responsible for the culture that despises woke, even if they don't know what woke means, it's Donald Trump. But now he's already, I guess he's already figured he's won the Republican nomination. Uh, And so now he's thinking ahead to the general public, you know, the general election in November. Keep in mind, we're June of 2023. The primary season for the Republican Party is February and March largely in April of 2024, and the general election is November 2024, Donald Trump has already started, in his mind, decided that he will be the victor, and he's already getting ready to run against Joe Biden by moving to the center. Uh, It's either that or he's just lost his mind and babbling and (laughs) wanted to somehow or other make fun of Ron DeSantis. But he denounced the concept of woke 
in, in terms of the way Ron DeSantis used it, that, you know, woke America is destroying everything that matters. And he was like, what, is, what does even woke mean? I don't know what it means. Nobody knows what it means. Classic Donald Trump. The man is a lunatic, ladies and gentlemen. And, uh, and yet, I wonder, is he worse than Ron DeSantis? question we'll be pondering on other shows down the road. All right, without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself. Then we're going to have a conversation having absolutely nothing to do with what I just said. Typical Ben Jarofsky show. Distinguished guest, introduce yourself. Yeah, so I've never had the pleasure of being on your show before, Ben. Uh, this is Steve James. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Steve, film, he's always modest. Local filmmaker. Yes, there we go. Local filmmaker. Local filmmaker. <laughs> they call him Hollywood Steve. Yeah. For, uh, because yeah. <laughs> he's the man in the movie business. Everybody who listens to the show know who's, knows who Steve James is, and he's been on the show many, many times. Uh, and he will be on the show again real soon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, we'll be talking about the guy's like cranking him out. I think the last time we we're in the show, I compared you to Steven Spielberg in the early 90s, uh, because you have. Two movies uh, that will be coming out. Well, one is a TV series. We'll talk about that. Uh, uh, but The Compassionate Spy is also coming out this summer. I can't wait to talk to you about that. Uh, but now I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to talk about your Bill Walton documentary, which is absolutely fantastic, folks. Run, don't walk to see it. There were moments in this documentary. I am now making a confession, Steve. Don't laugh at me. I was weeping. I was crying because I'm an old man and nostalgia gets to me. And this is my wheelhouse, 1970s basketball. <laughs> it's my existence is all about this. Plus, it's got a great Grateful Dead uh, soundtrack. I don't know how you uh, got that. You'll maybe explain that, um, which is appropriate to the subject of Bill Walton and some great Dead songs, including Playing in the Band, which is one of the greatest songs in my humble opinion, the Grateful Ever did, uh, did, Grateful Dead ever did. So, congratulations, Steve! Another masterpiece. Uh, and why don't you just start at the outset by promoting it when, when people can watch it, uh, when it drops, etc. Take it away. Yes. So it premieres this coming Tuesday, June sixth, at seven Eastern, eight Central, six Mountain. Uh, five Pacific. I know you you're listened to across many time zones. Ben, so we want to make sure we get get all the time zones in there, um, and uh, that the first two episodes will premiere then, and then the 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 last two episodes uh, premiere the following week, June thirteenth, same time. So, uh, yeah, tune in. And the title of the movie or series, "The Luckiest Guy in the World," uh, and that title is derived. I'll anticipate your next question, uh, Ben. Um, is derived from the fact that Bill says it about a hundred times a day. Uh, he calls himself the luckiest <laughs> guy in the world. And, yeah. and so the film, it, it just seemed like a no brainer to call it that, but also because it it's, you know, I think as you watch the series, you certainly come to realize he has not been the luckiest guy in the world, but that that's how he chooses to express his mantra. Yeah. I always say, I don't want to give the movie away. Of course, like if you're anybody res remotely resembling me, you know everything that's in the movie already uh, because Bill Walton is an iconic figure uh, to people of my generation, basketball fans of my generation. Uh, and I recognize, uh, Steve, something 
uh, that's a little hard to take at first, but it's a reality. Uh, first of all, uh, I am my generation is not the only generation that exists, and there's a lot of other people who probably never even heard of Bill Walton. Uh, and furthermore, there's this is a political uh, podcast. There's probably a lot of people uh, who don't follow basketball. Shocking as that is. Uh, and I'm really indulging myself here. <laughs> Steve and I have talked. I may do three episodes dedicated uh, to this movie uh, and to the, just the general theme of basketball and American culture, uh, particularly in the 1970s. Uh, so why don't you explain, as opposed to me explaining, who Bill Walton is for folks who might not know who he is and his significance uh, to American culture? Yeah. <clears throat> well, I, if if people know Bill today who are not um, hardcore basketball fans or his basketball historians, <laughs> uh, it's because he he is a broadcaster. Um, he does color commentary for college games still. Um, and if you're a Pac-12 fan, which I'm sure there's a ton of them in your audience. Um, they know they're they're wondering what the Pac-12 is, probably. But it's uh, if you're if you're a fan of that particular West Coast conference, then you'll uh, uh, then you'll know Bill because he's a he's a very original broadcaster. He he does games, but he sometimes talks about the game if the game's interesting. If the game's not interesting, he talks about everything under the sun but the game. Uh, so he he is loved and hated. Uh, among basketball, current basketball fans who who listen to him do broadcasts, but his more significant um, role in American sports history, anyway, is because of the player he was. and And when he was at UCLA, um, he was arguably the best college player ever. Um, he uh, he led the UCLA team to what still stands as an eighty eight game win streak that no one has eclipsed. Um, they won two national championships when he was there. And and he went on to Portland where he was going to be a, a, a sort of savior for that franchise and also a very prominent white basketball star, I think it should be said, uh, in a league that was dominated and to this day by, by black athletes. Um, and, and from that point forward, his career became quite marred. Uh, he saw the highest of highs when he was healthy and the lowest of lows when he was frequently unhealthy, but he was also very outspoken politically. Um, and he spoke out against the war in Vietnam. This will appeal to now, now your, now your listeners who haven't turned off or, or their ears are peaking, you know, perking up on this one. He was very much against the war, very much against Nixon, very much, uh, against capitalism and sports, uh, or the, 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 the bad part of capitalism, whatever, in sports. And so he was very outspoken, and he was vilified for those points of view back then. So, um, you know, he was a controversial figure in his day um, back, in the, back in the late 70s, early 80s. So if anybody knows anything about me, uh, and I'm a lefty who loves basketball, so... Bill Walton. <laughs> it's yeah. like, He's in your wheelhouse. The bill, no pun intended. <laughs> He's in my wheelhouse. Yeah. Uh, and um, nowadays, I pretty much just follow the pro game. But back in the 70s, I followed, if it was basketball, I followed it, everything. 
I followed much more sports in general in the 70s. Uh, but pro basketball, college basketball, high school basketball, my own intramural basketball. Uh, so I, if it was basketball, I was following it. And Bill Walton, folks, he uh, iconic is about the only word I could think of for a young lefty basketball fan uh, in the early 70s. Uh, and also just for um, anybody struggling with the notion of race in basketball. A lot of young people, I'm thinking of myself now, it's like that whole issue of why is basketball dominated by black athletes? And why uh, are white guys not as good at basketball as black athletes? Which is like a, a larger question that you can't really ask in society for a whole bunch of reasons because no answer can really... is Any answer you give is going to offend somebody. So people just sort of stay away from the discussion. Uh, but I could just tell you this, uh, Steve... At the age of 13 and 14, 12, 11, whenever I was just really getting into basketball, I was like thinking about this, you know, all the time. I was just, and there was nobody I could turn to for, Dad, help me out with this one, would you? I, I need to know. Nobody, there was nobody out there who was going to help me with this, struggle with this issue. And then out of nowhere, here comes the big redhead from San Diego. I remember when he was a freshman. In those days, freshmen didn't play in varsity. The big redhead from San Diego. I'm like, wow, a white guy who's good at basketball. What's going on? <laughs> this dude was so good, ladies and gentlemen, at basketball. All right? Just in my lifetime, there's only, I told Steve, there's two white guys that you could argue belong in the top 20. And one is Larry Joe Bird, who played for the Boston Celtics, and the other is Bill Walton, whose career was destroyed by feet, foot injuries. So I know you always pretend like you're so much younger than me, which is not true. We're the same age. Um, <laughs> oh, much younger than Ben. I'm not old. <laughs> but I know it must, like, uh, yeah, you're younger at heart and spirit and all. But it must have been a moment when you're doing this documentary where you're looking at Bill Walton, you're talking to him going, I'm, I'm doing a documentary about Bill freaking Walton. Yeah. D did for, you have that moment? For sure. For sure. I mean, you know, I grew up, I, you know, I grew up, um, you know, playing basketball. It was the only thing I cared about. Um, I used to, uh, and I'm in Virginia and, and I'm not even sure why this, you could do this, but if you stayed up on the weekends after the late news, you could watch UCLA games from Pauley Pavilion. Um, and I used to do that a lot as a, as a kid. I would wa And I was watching Bill Walton play at Pauley Pavilion and just marveling at, at how great he was. Because, yeah, I think the thing, the thing that was so sort of unusual about him, and, and I too, because I had a lot of black teammates growing up, I, I certainly noticed that there weren't a lot of good white players. <laughs> uh, there's a famous story uh, at the All-Star game years before Bill came along when Jerry West was the only white star at the All-Star game and, some, and Will Chamberlain came over to him at the jump circle and said, take a look around, you are the great white hope. Um, so, you know, here was, this, here was this, this big redhead who wasn't just a big, tall guy 
and was a good basketball player simply because he was big and tall and and had some skills. He was also a terrific athlete. He could run the floor. He could jump. He could do it all. And and when he was healthy, that's why, you know, you say, Ben, when he was healthy, he was he was among the best, I think, you know, that could play. I mean, in the series, Larry Bird himself says um, that um, if Bill had stayed healthy, um, we would be talking about him as among the best in the game. And I said, best big man? And he goes, no, best in the game. That's, that's, that's how Larry Bird felt about Bill's ability. And he got to see Bill, you know, on those magic days where the, the, all the surgeries or whatever, you know, these great athletes like LeBron, every once in a while they can, they can pull back the, the, the curtain on, on and make father time go away for a little while and they can really perform uh, at their height. And he got to see Bill do that from time to time when he was with the Celtics. Yeah, no, and it comes clear uh, when you watch the footage uh, in Steve's movie or series. I keep calling it a movie. I apologize. A series. Uh, I view it as a movie. But anyway, um, when you see the old footage, uh, how great Walton is. And uh, for current basketball junkies, I'd say uh, Nikola, Nikola uh, Jokic is as close uh, uh, to Walton. And the game is so much different now than it was then. So Jokic has a three-point shot that Bill Walton would. I don't. I don't know if Bill Walton even made a three-point shot. Well, there was. There wasn't uh, even. So a, it was yeah. unthinkable that. A, yeah, yeah. I mean, in, there wasn't a three. In the end well, the it was towards the end of his yeah. career. There was, but yeah, no, he was not a three-point shooter. Jokic is is you know an offensive player in a way that Bill wasn't. But Bill Bill actually was a good offensive player. It just wasn't the part of the game that he really concentrated on. You know, um, bo- both those guys, I think the thing that they both have most in common is their ability to see the floor and pass. Um, Jokic, people say Jokic is the best passing big man since Bill Walton. That's how that's how good a passer Bill was. So if you're a Jokic fan, just think, imagine that. Um, you know, there are differences, obviously. Jokic is way more of an offensive player, um, but... Bill is is was way more of a defensive presence and a rebounder. I mean, I, I don't think Jokic has ever jumped more than eight inches off the ground, and he doesn't need to. Um, but Bill was way more of an athlete and an, and a defensive presence than Jokic will ever be. So you know, they, they each had their strengths. Yeah, and uh, the, the, an analogy in my mind is the quickness with, uh, with which they release the ball for the fast break. And watching those old clips of Bill Walton in your uh, series just brought it home. That I think I, I compare him to Dennis Rodman as well. That ability to get the rebound and just look that quick look down court, and you just survey the court, see who's open, make the decision as to whether it's uh, wise to pass the ball. And then on an instant, and then boom, if it is you're the release, and you just watch, it's a perfect pass, like half-court pass, full-court pass, gets the guy in stride. It's, I, Rodman could do that as well, uh, and uh, Wes Sunsell could do that, and I'm thinking of... Uh, yeah, but but nobody did it better than Bill, and and Bill, what's what was a revelation to me in terms of that was when you see him in high school, you see that he was already doing that in high school. He didn't learn that from Wooden. He didn't learn that when he got to the pros. He was doing it in high school, and his high school coach says in the series, 
that frequently he would pull a rebound and outlet the pass before he ever even hit the ground. And you, and you'd see him do that as, as a college and pro player as well. Yeah. Uh, the wooden uh, that uh, Steve James alluded to is John wooden, the, the coach at UCLA uh, who had a phenomenal uh, run of successes. I think he won, like, I forget how many uh, NCAA championships in a row eight or something like that. I've lost track. Uh, and uh, a lot of the movie uh, is talks about Bill Walton's, uh, relationship with John Wooden. Uh, and it's very, it, it, it kind of reminds me of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's talk about John Wooden. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was Lou Alcindor playing at UCLA before, right before Walton did. It was the idol of Walton's. But in each case, both of these uh, men were leftists. Uh, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is still very much a political person. I, I told you I subscribed to his newsletter, uh, and he's about as left as I am. And which is pretty left. Uh, Walt doesn't have the politics these days, it seems, that he had then. But he had it then. Uh, and he had this conflict with, uh, with John Wooden that you talk about in the movie a lot. Uh, and now he speaks, like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar does, with such reverence of John Wooden, almost as if John Wooden is a saintly figure to him constantly quoting him there's you, you you use it for comic purposes where you have different characters in the movie quoting walton talking about wooden and then you have walton doing it it's like uh obvious that he does this all the time but why don't you talk about that transformation between uh from where bill walton was when he was playing for this sort of conservative coach john wooden to where he is now where he views John Wooden as a major influence on his life. Yeah, well, I think he 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 really saw the major influence Wooden had even while he was still a player. Uh, once he got to the pros, he 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 came to realize that much of what Wooden had tried to teach him was was you know was very valuable, and 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 yeah, I think Bill regrets some of his his. Um, tweaking of Wooden when he was a player there, you know, he would, he was, he was a thorn in Wooden's side to some extent because of, you know, they did not share the same politics and, and Bill came from a generation where you, you made sure people knew how you felt about that, right? The, during the, the late seventies, early seventies and, and, and through the late seventies. And so, so, you know, but, but it's almost like, you know, Bill was able to see past in the way I think Kareem does is see past their differences politically to see what genuine good men, a good man that Wooden was and and how much he had offered them in terms of life lessons as well as basketball lessons. Uh, do you uh, does Bill Walton was it fair to say that Bill Walton doesn't have the politics uh, anymore or the obsession? Or I, I think he, I, I think his politics are, are pretty, he's pretty liberal. Um, but he's not nearly as, uh, outspoken as he was back then. Um, but I, I don't think his politics have changed dramatically. Um, but he's, but he's considerably less outspoken. He's not like Kareem in that regard. And, um, but you know, if you watch some of his games where he's, uh, when he's broadcasting, he'll get off on a political tangent from time to time, and and uh, and you see that he's still quite liberal. But I don't think he's you know he's not 
he's not nearly as as far to the left as he was, you know, when he was at Portland and he was attacking Nixon and attacking capitalism and sports. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think he's in that place anymore. All right. Uh, let's get to that. There's a portion of the uh, film uh, where you, I love this part of the movie. Uh, you got Walton to read a letter that he wrote way back in the seventies at some point, I can't remember the exact year. Uh, it was denouncing capitalism and sports, etc. cetera. Uh, it looked like the way it, it looked like he wasn't particularly pleased that you were asking him to read this letter, but he read the letter anyway. Uh, he was reading it on a tablet. Uh, so it was sort of reminiscent of Michael Jordan back in the movie, um, the last dance going to a tablet to see what somebody said about him and then riffing looked like he wanted to hit you over the head with the tablet, uh, as much as read from it, but he, he, he read from it. Uh, and, uh, talk about that letter and your decision to have him read from it. Yeah. Well, I think, I think because Bill is not nearly as outspoken. Um, and if you read his memoir, uh, you know, um, Back from the Dead, which is a very entertaining book to read, he doesn't really talk a ton, a lot about his politics from that time. So it's a, it's a part of his life that um, he doesn't highlight today. And even when he wrote about his life in his memoir, he didn't highlight it in, in any particular large degree. But when I came across this letter, I just thought, wow, this is really a window into who he was then. And I really wanted to have that in the story. And my dream was to get him to actually read it. And so you see me, you, <laughs> I told Jackson, my son, who was shooting that day, I said, you know, I'm going to ask him to read this. It'll be interesting to see what his reaction is. So Jackson was was on alert to, to make sure that he captured it. And sure enough, he, he kind of gives me this look. And um, But once he get, once he started reading it, he got into it. Um, and I think he kind of reconnected with that part of who he was back then with with a, a measure of pride at, at, at what he was saying. Uh, I just think that he, you know, he's a, he's a, an older guy, like a lot of people who were, you know, unlike Ben, a lot of people who were quite liberal or left in their youth, um, you know, as they got older, they, they, they just don't have that same fire, political fire that they had then. And, you know, I think this kind of brought him back to that for, for a bit. And it's really kind of great to see. Yeah, no, it is great. It's a great moment in the movie. Uh, and he does get into it. Um, there's also a, a bit about uh, Bill Walton's life, a connection uh, in the 70s. There's a Patty Hearst connection. Uh, and again, it's a generational thing. Everybody my age knows who Patty Hearst is and who her, what her significance is, politically speaking and culturally speaking. Uh, and um, it's going to be an education for uh, younger viewers. Anybody under the age of 50 may not know who uh, Patty Hearst is or what happened to her. Um, somehow or other, Bill Walton is connected to Patty Hearst and will always be connected to Patty Hearst in the minds of boomers uh, who can remember back to this. So why don't you talk a little bit about that connection uh, and you explore it uh, in the movie. Yeah, it's so. interesting. It's it's like I remember when all that broke in the media uh, at the time, which was around 1975, I want to say. 
And, um, you know, I was, I was in college and I just remember hearing like Bill Walton or reading because this was the media interpretation. <laughs> uh, Bill Walton had a, uh, a terrorist living with him um, uh, uh, named Jack Scott. Uh, and Jack Scott uh, was a guy who was a very, very outspoken um, uh, activist around sports and amateurism and professionalism and capitalism. And he was a buddy of, of Bill's and he was living literally with Bill and the FBI accused Jack and they were, he denied it, but it was true of ha- helping Patty Hearst and the Symbionese Liberation Army escape the clutches of the FBI. Now, who were the Symbionese Liberation Army? <laughs> they were a group of, a ragtag group of very radical uh, folks who wanted to overthrow the U.S. government. I mean, there was probably only about nine or ten of them. I'm not exactly sure how they were going to do that, but uh, that was their goal. They, you know, they had big goals to overthrow the U.S. government, and and they kidnapped Patty Hearst. Uh, and Patty Hearst was the daughter of William Randolph Hearst, who, you know, was this huge newspaper magnate and very rich man. And they did it to draw attention to their cause, but also to hopefully get a lot of money to support their cause. And so it was a huge news story. You can only imagine if, if the daughter of, of, you know, uh, I don't even know if he has a daughter, but you know, if, if the, the Tesla guy's daughter, you know, <laughs> if he had a Elon daughter got, got kidnapped, Elon Musk, you know, what a, what a big deal it would be, right? So, um, so anyway, th- th- what happened was is that this thing all broke. It came out that Jack Scott, who was living with Bill, was an aide to, to this group and to Patty Hearst, who eventually joined the group. That was the other amazing thing about this story. She was kidnapped and then became part of the Simeonese Liberation Army. Um, and and so it, it became this huge thing in the sports world because it was like, who is this guy? He's hurt a lot. He's, he's you know, giving uh, home to radicals. Uh, he's connected to terrorists. And it was a huge, huge deal. And Bill was vilified greatly for it. And he, you know, at a certain point, you see this in the series, he went before the press and defended Jack Scott and and went on the attack on the U.S. government for all that they and the FBI for all that they had done. So it was a it was a pretty big deal. <laughs> yeah, it was a very big deal. And uh, just a minor correction: Patty Hearst was the granddaughter. Uh, yeah, not the daughter of William uh, Randolph Hearst. Uh, but uh, always yeah, correcting and, and- me, Ben. Always correcting me. <laughs> Just trying to keep you honest, young man. Um, there were times in the movie itself, in between my weeping uh, at the movie, which really, there's so many moments in the movie that hit me hard. Uh, it just brought back so many memories. Uh, but there was the, that's not what happened moments where I'm like, I'm having my, like a Bill Walton moment myself. Uh, and, uh, so yes, me correcting uh, Steve James is, is just an old story. Um, all right, let's uh, talk about the Bulls connection uh, in the movie. One of my favorite parts of it, no doubt, maybe my favorite part. Uh, so 
a good chunk of the movie chronicles the 1976-1977 Portland Trailblazers team. And this is the one time in his career, ladies and gentlemen, the one time in a basketball career uh, that went from the 70s to uh, late 80s where Bill Walton was healthy from the start to the finish, basically, and at full capacity. So you could see how great he could be. And he was playing in the NBA against the best players in the world. And he led his Portland Trailblazers team to the championship. And they defeated the Philadelphia 76ers, who were led by the glorious uh, Dr. J. Great moment in basketball history. Urge everybody to watch it for that reason alone. And you see how great uh, Bill Walton is as a basketball player. The Portland Trailblazers opened their playoff run by playing my beloved Chicago Bulls. And in those days, you had to win. It was two out of three. It's ancient history. Two out of three. One game in Portland. Excuse me, two games in Portland, one game in Chicago. That Chicago game where they played at the stadium is one of the great games in the hearts and minds of Bulls fans who are old enough to remember the 70s. The place was rocking. The Bulls beat the Trailblazers, forced a game three. Unfortunately, we didn't have Michael Jordan on that team, and we lost. Uh, as we all lost every big game until we had Michael Jeffrey Jordan. Thank you, Steve James, for including that in this movie. There's an interview with Artis Gilmore. Uh, Sam Smith recollects. It's just a great moment for an old Bulls fan. Um, on the other hand, the 1986 Celtics team that Bill Walton played for, uh, and he was uh, a reserve player by then, uh, he helped them win the championship. They began their playoff run by playing the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jeffrey Jordan. They swept the Bulls. Jordan uh, had one of the greatest games in the history of basketball. He scored 63 points in a double overtime. Somehow or other, I'm finding my inner Bill Walton here, somehow or other, Steve James didn't think it was worthwhile to put that in the movie. All right, so I, <laughs> I applaud you for 77, but I'm chiding you for the oversight in 86. Explain yourself. Take it away. I figured you would. Um, yeah, I remember watching that game live my, myself uh, on tv i wasn't i wasn't uh, able to see it in the arena but uh, and it was an extraordinary game and it was after that game that bird famously said um he's what seen god or or <laughs> and his name is michael jordan um yeah. so you know we didn't include it because why well because it really wasn't that relevant to Bill's story at that point. Um, and we had, we couldn't show all that basketball. We had to cut to the quick and get to the finals, uh, the year because Bill wasn't, he was the sixth man and he was the sixth man of the year in the NBA that year. But it, you know, it was, it was not the same, uh, role that he played on that team that he had played in the earlier, uh, championship, the earlier championship, um, you know, I, I looked like, we looked like crazy to try to find good quality video of that famous Bulls game at the stadium. And you, the, the footage we have in there is, is marginal at best. And we could never 
We looked under every rock. We talked to the NBA. We talked to the Bulls. We talked to every footage collector out there. Nobody seems to have it except one guy who taped it off of his TV in a, in a poor VHS copy, uh, which we were able to get a hold of. But, but you know, that game was legendary. It was legendary not just for Bulls fans. It was legendary for um, for Bill. Bill says in the series that it was the single most exciting basketball game he ever played. And I know Bill is given to, you know, those kinds of statements, but he's careful about he doesn't say that about any other. He, I never heard him say that about any other single game. Um, he's very careful about uh, the games he played in, in the way he characterizes them. He doesn't go off on those rants of this is the most fantastic or the worst in history or any of that. And that game was, you know, there were there were 33 lead changes or something like that. I mean, it was it was truly, you know, a a exciting game and Gardner Gilmore is quoted as saying that it was it was the most intense game he ever played so there you go yeah well I uh I was really appreciative of you for, uh putting that in there uh throwing that bone to old Bulls fans uh and uh in the acknowledgement from Bill Walton that that was the toughest series that the Trailblazers had uh in uh that run uh some great footage of Ben I just want to say that ESPN at one point said you could lose that Chicago series. And I said, no, (laughs) I said, no, I fought for it. Uh, I I don't know how much of that is true, but it delights me. Nonetheless, (laughs) it's true. (laughs) I don't get it. Steve, what, what, who cares? (laughs) Uh, ESPN, ESPN. Uh, let's not bash the producer of the show. All right. Let's just move on from that one. (laughs) If that is true, that is delightful. Uh, so many, uh, eighties icons, uh, interviewed in this or seventies as well. I mean, uh, Parrish, I'm going to name some names here. Robert Parrish, the great center hall of fame center, Larry Joe bird, the hall of one greatest players of all times. Kevin McHale, hall of famer, Dr. J himself, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Uh, did you interview all of these, um, legendary players? Yeah. Like, like who you mean, did I stay home and send someone to do it? Do you think I would do that? It's, it's, uh, no, I'm, I, I didn't know if that was you doing the interview or those clips, Oh no, no, no. We we I, I wasn't gonna pass up the opportunity to talk to these guys. Uh no, we 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 conducted those interviews. And uh, you know, I got pictures of myself. <clears throat> when I went to do the interview with Dr. J, uh, you know, because I grew up in Virginia and Dr. J first burst on the scene uh with the Virginia Squires in the ABA, as I'm sure many of your listeners will know. Um <laughs> Uh, that's where he that's where the legend began so i wore a squire shirt to the interview with uh dr j and he was so tickled by it that he asked for a picture with me wearing that shirt wow (laughs) that's pretty cool uh and um I'm sure he's going to be listening to this interview because Dr. Chase is a huge listener to the Ben Jarofsky show. I just want to tell you that. Uh, the other delightful thing, since you mentioned T-shirts, is that Sam Smith, uh, the um, longtime writer, a journalist here in Chicago, covers the Bulls, uh, 
did the interview with Steve, he was wearing a Grateful Dead T-shirt. So let's talk Grateful Dead. What is it about the Grateful Dead that Bill Walton loves them? Why why does he love the Grateful Dead so much? <clears throat> I mean, I'm not going to do justice to this answer. I, I, I think I mean, I think he generally loves the music they make, but I think it's more than that. I think I think he loves the way in which they play music, which is, um, you know, it, he will tell you that no two Grateful Dead concerts can ever be the same because there's such there's such a, a sort of gestalt, if you will, Bill or Ben, that, that goes on with the band. And, um, you know, it's why he's been to more than a thousand concerts. He, you, you say, well, how can you possibly go see the same band play a thousand times? He says, well, look at all the basketball games I've seen over the years. I've seen thousands of basketball games. Why do I keep watching? Well, because they're always different, and that's the way he feels about the dead. So there's something about the, the, the way in which the dead work and play with each other. I think that appeals to him greatly, but I also think it's the, it's the vibe of the scene. It's the deadheads. It's the religious experience that they have. You know, I think that there, there's something about the experience of being there that is a religious one for him and for many grateful dead head fans um, that he just can't get enough of. He just can't get enough of it. All right. So this is one of the delightful moments uh, in the series as well is uh, Steve James pushing back against Bill Walton. Uh, And you'll pick up on this, folks, real soon about Bill Walton. He insists things. And he has favorite words that he uses to describe, like fantastic, luckiest man in the world. And he says it in such a pronounced way. Uh, He's he's overcoming his stuttering, which we'll get into that in a little bit. Uh, And he'll just say it over, I am the luckiest man in the world. And uh, I love the Grateful Dead. He'll just repeat things. And Steve, you seem to get the light in pushing back. Are you really the luckiest man in the world? Do you really love the Grateful Dead as much as you say you do? You know, and, and, and Walton is looking right back at you and he's going, yes, Steve James, I will never change. I never budge a bit. From what I am saying to you right now, no matter how many times you pester me with your questions, your inane questions, that's kind of like the dynamic. I really got a kick out of it. Yeah, it's, well, uh, it's one of the reasons why we left that in there. I mean, a lot of times when I interview people, um, you know, I cut the questions out mostly. I mean, 99% of the time. And and certainly most of the questions are not in this either. But but there was something about that dynamic and that that sparring if you will, that, that went on from time to time that we felt was, was both entertaining, but also revealing of his personality and who he is. And that's why we left it in. I love it. And, uh, (laughs) I enjoy it. And I'm not quite sure. I believe what Walton says. He's the luckiest man in the world, uh, either. All right. And then we're going to get to the infamous, uh, throw him under the bus portion of the series. Uh, and you're going to hear some pushback from Steve James right here. Um, there is a point in the in the movie where I was yelling at the screen. Uh, th- this time, not in appreciation uh, for what you'd done, but for what I thought was unfair treatment of Bill Walton. Uh, and Bill Walton missed many, many, many games. Far more games than he, he missed more games than he played uh, over the course of his how many years it was in the the league. Uh, and he still got paid. 
uh, and you uh, hit him with this a few more than a few times and quoted people's uh, uh, criticizing him for this or questioning it. And I just want to point out that one of the benefits of the NBA, as opposed to the NFL or the football league, uh, is that players have guaranteed contracts in the NBA. Uh, so it's more like a business, a typical business arrangement. And you sign that deal, the the owner has to pay you the money, whether you get hurt or not. We saw this here in Chicago, ladies and gentlemen. You remember Derrick Rose when his knee blew out in 2000. Derrick Rose didn't lose any salary over that. That's because NBA players, their collective bargaining agreement gives them guaranteed contracts as opposed to NFL players who are treated like just like replaceable parts. And as soon as they're injured, boom, you're gone. So I would say that's an aspect of the NBA that is civilized, uh, and I appreciate it because the a, a, pro, a basketball player, a football player's career is very short, Steve. Uh, they relentlessly throw their bodies into this game. They get hurt. They rip a, a body part. They're gone. Their career's over. So I appreciate the fact uh, that there's guaranteed comp contracts. And I do not hold it against Bill Walton uh, that he had a guaranteed contract. And uh, so you take it away with your rebuttal. Go ahead. Well, I mean, you've hardly given the context to there's hard, mu not much to rebut. I would say you're right about all that. And you could even say that's a good deal for the NBA players, that they get that, that that's, that's a good deal for them. Right. Wouldn't you say that, Ben? Wouldn't you say that's a good deal? The NBA players are paid whether they hurt or not. You might say that. You might say that. So at one point in the film, I say to Bill, because when he was hurt uh, at the Clippers and was hardly playing at all, <clears throat> I say, you know, you I I I say you you were able to get paid despite being hurt. Right. And he goes, yes. And I said and I start to say that's a good deal even and then i start to say even though it's not what you want and he takes complete umbrage at me calling it a good deal as if he were satisfied to just get paid and not play and he kind of you know he gets angry at me and that's in the film and i wanted to keep it in the film even though i think he's wrong i wanted to keep it in the film because it shows how strongly he felt about that um that he absolutely didn't want to play hurt I think the other place that you you had an issue is is that the following year after they won the championship, the, the Trailblazers were even better. They were fifty and ten. They were on their way to a repeat of the title. I don't think there was any question, had Bill not been hurt, that they were going to repeat as champions. And they might have turned into a dynasty if Bill could have stayed healthy. They were that good. And so when they were fifty and ten and tearing up the league, Bill got hurt again and had to miss games and he tried to come back in the playoffs uh and he and he couldn't he couldn't go and at a certain point he agreed to take shots to try to get back out on the court and you know when we deal with that part of the film bill was so upset at the doctors for giving him those shots because it it further damaged his foot without question that he demanded to be traded from portland uh, a place that he had loved. And we get into it and explain all that. And, and there are a couple of people's comments in there that I think you took issue with uh, as, as if they were saying that um, defending Portland, giving him the shots. And I don't think they were at all. I think what they were saying is, is that, um, that they, that the doctor's, 
that Bill taking the shot was something that he agreed to do, whether he should have or not. And he felt, and, and Halberstam says he felt compelled to do it. And so he agreed to it, but it doesn't make it right. And I give, I give Bill the chance to speak to that, which is, of course, athletes like Bill who want to be on the court, who, who want to play desperately, who want to win, they oftentimes will make decisions to take shots that they shouldn't have taken. And, and I don't begrudge Bill at all for being angry at the doctors for putting him in that position. But the doctor's point was is that he agreed to and wanted the shot. And I, I, I imagine that he probably did in that moment. He wanted the shot because he thought, if I can get out there, we can win and we can win another championship. Well, uh, sports has changed uh, to some degree on this front. And I ha- I'm happy to say this, for instance, in the concussion protocol, uh, the rule in, in, def- in both the NBA and the NFL, uh, if a doctor decides that the player has a concussion, uh, the player will not be brought back in the game, no matter how much he, the player, insists he wants to go back in the game. Because uh, the moment, you know, in that moment, the player wants to, you're in the game and you want to finish the game and you want to win the game. And you, uh, and the doctor says, no, we're not bringing you back and there's nothing you could do about it. And, and, and long term, it's in the best interest of the player. Yeah. And, and, and Bill, you know, Bill says, when I ask him about that, I said, you know, is it, I ask him, I say, is it fair for a doctor to leave that, de- that decision up to you in that situation? Is that fair, really a fair thing for them to do? And he says, given his the way he was, always wanting to get back in the court, he needed people to hold him back from doing things like that, not encourage it. And and that's, I think, where the doctors have no case to make. No, doctors have no case. Uh, absolutely violating whatever oath they took uh, in those moments. All right. Uh, we'll close with this. In my opinion, I'm going to throw a Bill Walton line at you. I'm going to... Uh, to sort of uh, conjure up my inner Bill Walton. Uh, in my opinion, Bill, Bill Walton uh, was the great innovator uh, in sports broadcasting. And I, he invented, I would say, the modern version of what we call the hot take in sports. And you'll see Stephen A. Smith is a hot take guy. Uh, Skip Bayless is a hot take guy, Sterling Sharp, uh, Michael Wilbon to a certain degree. Uh, and these are sports uh, talk show hosts uh, or pundits, I don't know what they call themselves, who just issue these strong declarative sentences, absolutes. They say it with passion. They raise their voice. They yell. Like if the, the louder you yell, the more it's true. It's hard not to do it when you have your podcast, Steve. When you have the Steve James podcast, you'll find yourself doing that. Um, Bill Walton, I'd say Howard Cosell in his own way was probably the innovator of it all. But Bill Walton took it from Howard Cosell. Uh, and it's so, oh man, that, that Bill Walton would be the guy to invent this. He had a speech impediment. He, he struggled to get a sentence out. He overcame that. It's, I find this remarkable that he overcame that impediment to have such a long career in front of the microphone and invented the hot take. 
our modern day inversion of the hot take. And I, I feel like he belongs. If there's a, a sports hall of fame for sports announcers, he definitely uh, belongs in that hall of fame just for the contribution he has made uh, for good or bad on this front. Your thoughts? Well, I actually think he is in that. I think there is a sports broadcaster hall of fame of some kind and he is in it. So uh, he, Bill would totally appreciate your, your, your hot take uh, on, <laughs> on Bill's place in that history. I think, I mean, I think you make a lot of, you make a great point, you know, that, that, the kind of outspoken provocateur, um, you know, say something. Sometimes you're not even completely sure the guy saying it completely even believes it. It doesn't matter. It's it's a hot take. It's provocative. It's designed to get people talking and arguing. And Bill certainly revels in that. Yeah, I think, you know, the thing is, is that Bill was, you know, and you see this in the series, he was this incredibly shy, even withdrawn athlete in his early years. And much of that was due to the fact that he had this stutter and was very, very self-conscious. And and so he did not want to be in front of a microphone. Um, when he finally made that transition after getting help from the, the sort of famous broadcaster, Marty Glickman, uh, and and started to deal with his stutter and and became a color analyst. Um, he found his voice literally. Uh, he found his voice in a lot of ways. And uh, you know, his friend, one of his friends in the movie says, and you hear this a lot, is is that for the first half of Bill's life he hardly talked, and for the second half he hasn't stopped. <laughs> and uh, you know, yeah. so it's. It, it, that is who he's become, and it is a kind of like an incredible evolution for a guy who, when you see in this film early on, reporters asking him questions, he's giving them three-word answers because he really doesn't want to talk to them. Yeah. Well, it is um, a great flick. My hat's off to you. Uh, or I would take it off if I didn't have this headphone on top of it. Uh, and um, one more time, Steve, tell folks uh, how they can watch it uh, and when they can watch it. Go ahead. Yeah, it's <clears throat> premiering next Tuesday, June 6th, or this Tuesday, depending on when this uh, airs. This coming Tuesday, June 6th, at 7 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central. And, um, you know, I think uh, uh, for, for those of you who listen to the podcast who are not basketball fans at all. I, I, I don't hold out much hope you're going to check this out. But if you, if, you, if you have an interest in the cultural relevance of basketball in, in American society, I think it's, it's well worth your time. And Bill's story is a remarkable story and completely interesting and compelling and entertaining all, all on its own. And as this is not a series that's just about basketball. Absolutely. Uh- Although there's some great basketball footages and I didn't even get into this. Um, this could be a whole other segment, but the story of what Bill Walton went through with all his injuries and all his surgeries uh, and how he just never quit. And he, this dark moment in his life where he thought about the quitting, uh, committing suicide, very compelling human interest story. And so it works on that level as well. Uh, so it's just, I, I loved it. 
Uh, and I'm not even a great Grateful Dead fan. That's the irony of it. You know, Steve here, I'm like, oh, I love it when they play playing in the band. It's one of like five Grateful Dead songs that I like. The way you use that in the movie is excellent, in my humble opinion. Uh, and so I, if you're a Grateful Dead fan, watch it for that reason. Yeah. <clears throat> we had a great team. Uh, David Simpson, who's the, the editor on it, uh, is a Grateful Dead fan. So it, we leaned into him big time to 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 find the right songs for the right moments in the film, and um, and the dead agreed to let you play them. Well, them? for a price, yeah, <laughs> it wasn't cheap. Okay. Everybody's got its price. <laughs> it wasn't cheap. Grateful but, Dead, but uh, but the the truth is is that um, they don't they don't agree to their music being. It's not just about money for them at all. They don't agree to their music being used just because someone comes along with a checkbook, not at all. And they don't agree to this much of their music being used hardly ever. And all of that was because of Bill, uh, was their love of Bill. Um, and I showed them the first two episodes of a rough cut, at a, you know, fairly far along rough cut. At, and uh, the manager really dug what we were doing and how we were using the music and that helped too, so. All right, Steve, thank you so much for coming uh, on the show. I appreciate it. Great. Always great. Always a lot of fun, Ben. Thanks for having me on. And he'll be on, ladies and gentlemen. There'll be more Steve James because when the Compassionate Spy comes out, we're <laughs> bringing him back because which one do I like better, the Compassionate Spy or the Bill Walton Duck? I'll reveal that when I bring him back for the Compassionate. But the Compassionate Spy is no joke, ladies and gentlemen. That is a great doc. Uh, a little more traditional Steve James doc in many ways uh, than the Bill Walton one. Uh, so, but they're both great, and I urge everybody to check out Bill Walton. All right, that's Steve James. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Mm-hmm.